Don't talk to me unless it's about this. I'm back with one of my favorite authors, Lucy Tan, who wrote the novel What We Were Promised. And we're going to keep our conversation going about Lucy's writing and about the second half of Lan Samantha Chang's book, The Family Chow. Lucy, let's start with talking about you, but actually not as a writer, as a reader. I see that you have on your website a list of books that you're reading. It goes all the way back to 2015, and I love that you share that. And I'm curious how you would describe yourself as a reader and if that has changed over time. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I do put everything that I read and engage with um, on my website, and I do it more for me. I like to keep track of where I've been. It's kind of like a travel log. I think in recent years, I've been a little bit more intentional about reading outside my comfort zone. So when I was younger and um, I I first fell in love with books, I fell in love with a lot of YA, all kinds of YA from written from, you know, different decades, whatever I could find in the library. And I loved uh, just reading about young characters because I was young. And my mom would constantly try to push me outside my comfort zone, but she wasn't a big fiction reader in English. So she didn't know what to recommend. I remember one year I was 12. And so she worked at the library. She was a librarian. And she took me around just to, you know, a random patron and said, well, what do you suggest? I want my child to read outside her comfort zone. Who's your favorite author? And he said, oh, it's Stephen King for sure. This huge book of um, novellas or or short stories or something. And it was wild stuff. I mean, I was reading about rape. I was reading about like the kinds of horror that um, go beyond the paranormal. And that made a really lasting impression on me. <laughs> but I don't think it was all bad. You know, I, I definitely had some nightmares, but um, it made reading for me this way of exploring the world around me and uh, exploring different genres. So, yeah, I try to read pretty widely. Um, I love book clubs like this where I get to read something outside my comfort zone and then discuss it with somebody uh, who's also read it. So that's one of my favorite types of reading and engaging with literature. What would you say right now is your comfort zone? Um, oh, see, this is the other thing I love about reading is that there's a book for every mood and there's a book for every season. And so I get really excited about not, you know, I, I'll go on one big shopping spree each year maybe and buy a lot of books that I know I want to read throughout the year, but I don't really plan ahead um, it's just kind of like, ooh, what am I in the mood for? Because that's the best kind of reading when you get that immediate gratification of what you, what kind of world you want to be in. And I, so I don't, I don't like to be one of those readers where I'm like, oh, I have to read this book and then I have to read this book because it's like in my TBR list. And and I just, yeah, I don't try to guilt trip myself for not reading. I I completely forgot the original question. What was the question? <laughs> Oh, good. Um, I appreciate your honesty. What would you describe as your comfort zone right now? Like if you weren't pushing oh, yourself outside your comfort right zone, yeah. what kind of books would those be? What is my, that's a really good question. What is my, okay. So I think that when I'm just tired and I need some, I need something to fall into. I like a thriller. I like a literary thriller. They're hard to find. They're really hard to find a good one where the writing is really good and it's, um, not too far into the mystery lane where your enjoyment of the book 
uh, depends upon the mystery element working out to your satisfaction. So yeah, some, some, something a little bit more fast paced for my, you know, for my short attention span these days. But then other times, you know, it, I like a quiet book. I like a book that has a strong voice. I love a book where just the characters are really strong. There's a lot of interiority. I like a family story. I like, I don't know, what else is my comfort zone? I think maybe the best way to describe it too is that I like to try to read outside of the books that are presented to me. So, you know, there's a lot of books that get a lot of attention in publishing and that list of books is determined by people who are pretty homogenous, I, I would say. And I think that I like looking at the books that are a little bit less well-known, um, present a different perspective. So I think that in that sense, my comfort zone would be reading what is immediately in front of me, what people are talking about, what people are recommending, because of course I want to read those books. They sound so good and often they are. But to really dig further and to read books that are published, you know, quite a few years ago or uh, are translated works, those don't come up quite naturally in my newsfeed. Mm -hmm. Do you have ways that you, resources that you use or anything to find those books? Or like you said, it's, it's more just looking at older books, translated books. Yeah, um, I love browsing bookstores. So I love my indie stores. I love going to, so we have Elliott Bay here in Seattle. Um, they have quite a good selection of specifically foreign literature. In New York, I love McNally Jackson. It's all shelved by country of origin. So oh, cool. you can, if you're like, I'm in the mood for Irish literature, you can go in and, you know, browse whether, you know, you want to read oh, Roddy Doyle or, you know, I think Anne Enright, is she Irish? Well, anyway, so oft, and I love that because sometimes I fall in love with a book. I love a lot of Japanese literature and I'm like, I want to be in a similar world, but I've run out of options. I've read all this author's books and I want more. You just go to that section and you pick something that sounds interesting. That's awesome. I'm going to New York soon. I want to go visit this bookstore. Oh, it's it's great. I love McNally Jackson. That is the bookstore that I kind of, Grew up in, in a way, because when I was in college, that was the one that I went to. Can you think of a recent book you read outside your comfort zone that really surprised you by how much you liked it? You know, one or a few that really stood out yeah. to you? So there is this one called, in horror, called The Last House on Needless Street. And that was a mind-bendy, truly scary book. I think I, I do like reading horror um, because it... I like being scared. <laughs> I think it's like you're either the type of person who loves horror or, or, or hates horror. And I, I really like being scared. And it's hard to scare me. So that book scared me. I read another book. It's by a, a Japanese author, but I don't remember the name. It's called The Decagon House Murders. And that one is, is like a true straight mystery. Um, and it's based on... And then we were not, and then there were none by Agatha Christie, but it's, it's like a spin on it. So the characters die one by one, just like in Agatha Christie's novel, except it's set in Japan and they're all mystery fans and they're all named after different mystery writers. So it's a really meta book, but I think it works. Not a book that is at all like character focused, which is where my comfort zone is, but it is a puzzly book. It makes you um, really want to turn the pages is on the edge of your seat. So that's another book that I would recommend. 
And you said that one is less horror, like even though murder oh, that's, is in the yeah, title. It's not, it's not horror. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that one I could read because, I, yeah, I am a no horror kind of person. I feel like yeah, even as yeah, I've yeah. gotten older, my tolerance for either really sad things or really scary things has just like gone so far down. <laughs> I have none. I get that. I definitely <laughs> get that with really sad things because I just feel like in recent world, recent years the world has become so sad around us it's just a lot you know yeah to pay attention to the news and then to turn to fiction and then it's it's um it's it's just as sad or more sad so totally well thinking back to when you're writing what we were promised i'm curious if you can remember any key questions that early readers or an editor or agent anyone who read the book early on that they posed to you and how that question may have shaped or changed part of the story? Well, I can think of one question. I was struggling with the character of Lena. And I think I was, I think the way that the writing came across in early drafts was she was unlikable to the point where I had trouble empathizing with her. And so it was really hard. And so many of the pages are from her point of view. So my agent asked me, why is she, like, she's, she can't just be someone who, like, why, did, why is she redeemable in her own eyes? What does she want, you know? And, and what, what is going to save her? And so I spent some time thinking about that and where her identity lies and how that's changed throughout her life and how difficult that must have been for her. Um, so that allowed me to dig deeper into the immigrant story, the story of being a mother, of letting go, of relearning, of, you know, um, filling the different roles in her life that were required of her and may not have been required of way in quite the same way. So I think really thinking about that and my agent pushing me to do so um, helped to transform her character and for her to become more real to me. And what did that process look like if you going through all these realizations for you, does that happen in conversation with your agent or is that, you know, you alone in your writing space, you talking to other people? Um, both. I think for something as big as that, that's so fundamental to the character, I think only I can figure it out. And oftentimes I'm figuring it out through writing. So when a character comes, comes into conflict, how do they react and why? And, and so just writing those scenes gives me a better picture of who they are. And then, you know, also it's helpful to talk to a reader like my agent who will read the scene and say, well, I expected this person to react this way. And, and, and why, aren't, why aren't they thinking about this? And why aren't they feeling this? Or what are they exactly feeling in that moment? And so those questions will help reveal things that I might have overlooked. It might highlight places where I'm like, yeah, I know that there's something wrong with that chapter, but I, I couldn't figure it out. And then we talk it through and she gives me some ideas and I'm like, okay, even if what she's giving me isn't exactly hundred percent right, it's pushing me in the right direction or it illuminates some, some other aspect or some other factor that I thought I had made clear, but actually uh, it didn't come across on the page. So I want to talk about your acknowledgements. If anyone doesn't read acknowledgements, I highly recommend it. I love reading acknowledgements. And there were some interesting things you said about your family that I wanted to hear more about. And the first is you said that your grandparents taught you that the best kind of storyteller is a compassionate one. And mm -hmm. I wanted to hear about how they taught you that. 
So when I was younger, I, you know, my dad was working all the time. My, my parents were, I'm an only child. Uh, we were a true immigrant household. My dad was working all the time. My mom had a full-time job. It was difficult just kind of taking care of me alongside all of that. So it was often about getting from point A to point B and getting things done in the day. My grandparents, when they came to take care of me, I shared a lot of downtime with them. And I, it was, you know, my world was so small. I had my parents. I didn't have a ton of friends that I was socializing with all the time. So my parent, my grandparents came and they were these two new perspectives. And the way that my grandma just dealt with her day-to-day life as someone who didn't speak the language fluently, who is more of an immigrant than my parents are, the way she approached her interactions with other people floored me. So I'll give you an example. You know, we ordered pizza one time and the guy took forever to arrive. It was like an hour and a half. And he finally shows up, the delivery person, and um, he delivers the pizza. My grandma's all smiles. And she's just like, you know, giving him the money, extra tip. And we were all about saving money, right? So I was like, Grandma, why, why did you do that? He was really late and our pizza's cold and all these things. And she said, well, he must have had a really hard time finding the house. And I just felt bad for him. And I, I just have remembered that moment always um, for someone who has so little agency in the world to say, no, I can do something to make this other person's day better and I'm going to do it and to take her own agency and not really, you know, think about saving money all the time, not adhere to the strict immigrant mindset was, was refreshing to me. So that's one story about compassion. My grandpa, um, he was sent to the countryside and actually to a re-education camp um, when he was in China. He was part of the Communist Party, and that's a thing that happened to him. He has a lot of trauma from it. And when I was young, he would try to tell me these stories. And because I was young, I didn't get them, and I was kind of zone out, and I would hear them over and over again. So the words sort of were imprinted in my brain, but I didn't really get it. And it wasn't until much later that I started to understand when I was older and I took a lot of his stories and I wanted to, I wanted to tell them, I I wanted to share them with the world. And so I wrote a story called Safety of Numbers and it uses a lot of his experiences um, from his past and I shared it with him. And that was one of the most satisfying moments of my life, I think. Um, And he sat there with an English dictionary And with my recorded voice, having read the story to him and figured it out line by line. And we were able to talk about my writing together and talk about his experience again as, you know, as an, as I was an adult. So I think that it took compassion for me to really hear that story. It, you know, I, I had to be ready to listen to it. And, and I think that that is also, so compassion was the thing that I leaned on when I was writing what we were promised because the novel requires you to go into the perspectives of many different people. And it was important to me not to write a novel where there's a strict judgment on China or America or on these people's lives. I wanted to present all different sides because I think that what fiction can do, the magical thing that it can do is, is, is that it can look at the, the minutia in problems and make you think more and ask more questions. It's not, just about coming away with answers. Sometimes I read, you know, a book and I'm like, this author has already decided. 
you know, whether this character is in the right or in the wrong. Uh, this author has decided already what the reader should feel and think. And those books feel less interesting to me. I think that they have a place in the world. Um, I think that sometimes books can be more instructive and, and that is what the, the reader wants. But I am less interested in writing those kinds of books. I was just, someone was recently asking me what I like about other stories. And one of the things I had said was, I like when a book leaves readers very polarized and mm -hmm. some people are like oh this character was such a heartfelt person other people are like no that person was an idiot or they were really mean or exactly what yeah, you're saying yeah there. yeah yeah and it ties back to what you were saying with lena's character how you had to really lean into that seeking mm -hmm, compassion mm -hmm. for her to understand how she was really dynamic right exactly and i love you know the other reason that i love talking about characters with other people is because they may have a completely different opinion and I can learn more about them and I can learn more about the ways that I have brought my own biases into the reading of it. Totally. You also wrote about your parents in your acknowledgments and I did. you said that they taught you how to live adventurously mm -hmm. and think independently and that the safest path is not always the one worth traveling. And I was just like, Wow, wow, wow. All these things, one after the other. What amazing things to learn from your parents. And I'm curious if you have any specific stories that show how they taught you this, either explicitly or modeled this. I do. I remember having these, these moments when I was younger where I would, you know, kids question everything. They say, why, 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 why? And I think that um, the in the community where I was raised, you know, Chinese American kids, when they ask their parents that, they're like, because you're, I'm your mother. Like, don't, don't question me. Like, this is, this is how it is. Or I'm your father because I said so. And you're not old enough and all these things. And I think my dad did a really good job of engaging with me as an adult from the get-go. And so whenever I had questions, whenever I said why, he thought about why and he responded to me. And that made me a little bit spoiled because like sometimes when I would do it in public and be like, why, dad, why? He'd be like, can we just talk about this later, please? <laughs> but I think that um, he raised me with this idea of question everything. And my dad was raised by his dad to question everything. And, and so that it's it's been passed down kind of this um, this tendency in my family to to think independently, um, which I think is rare coming out of China, coming out of China, you know, so. So I um, definitely inherited that from my parents. Um, they both were amazing in, in terms of what they had to do to come here. So they both came here on, um, well, they came here for graduate school, both of them. My mom, though, was the first Chinese student at the University of Alaska at Juneau which has a different name now. I, don't, I think the school's name has changed, but she was the only person um, who was Chinese there. And for so long, you know, after she came from China, she didn't know when or if she was ever going to go back. So that's an entire language that you're leaving behind. And language is the way that you structure all of your thoughts. So she was essentially becoming a new person. And that is amazing to me. I, I remember her telling me this detail of, of when she was, and I think of my mom as a really tough, emotionally tough person, but she told me that at one point when she was in Alaska, she remembers just screaming into her pillow 
And I can't imagine her doing that now. And so it gives me chills to think about what she had to go through. But anyway, talk about leaving your home behind, right? So um, definitely full of desire for adventure. Um, my dad was the same way. He also came here for grad school. And he also, at in his early 30s, invested a whole lot of money um, in this company to bring Chinese acrobats to the U.S. for the first time on a national tour. And he did it and lost a ton of money in the process. <laughs> you know, there are aspects of Leo Chow that are not dissimilar to my dad, not in like the greed and the, you know, but, but I think in the fearlessness, in the confidence, in the charisma, um, and in this idea of America as a, as a place where you can kind of do anything and leaning into that. Um, I know that Leo feels he made the wrong move because he, he was like, actually, everything's opened up in China now. You can do all kinds of business there. There, you know, sky's the limit, whereas here it's not anymore. Everyone is already in business. Um, I think my dad actually took the more fortunate path of being able to make a life for himself here, but then also be able to go back to China and also do business. So anyway, they, they both share that entrepreneur's mindset. Yes. And there's a huge risk-taking element to it, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Well... Let's go keep going with with the family chow. I think we're just, I think we should start right with like the big mystery unfolded and I know I was totally taken aback. I hadn't thought anything about Olan's character. I don't think I mentioned her Same. once in our first conversation and I'm curious how you were feeling as that all started to unfold and as we realized what really happened. I was I was very shocked and at first, I wasn't really reflecting. I was just reading on. But then upon reflection, I thought it was so smart because it, it's, I think what um, Sam Chang does really well in this book is she's making, you know, political points that are not so hit you over the head. They're, they're, they're really deeply ingrained into the story and they take, they, they require a close read. And one thing that I love about this is that um, I feel like the point she's making is that when you're someone who doesn't speak the language and you don't have a voice, no one takes you seriously. And I feel like we've heard and read stories about, you know, trying to uplift the people who cannot speak for themselves. But I love the fact that she's a villain. You know, I mean, both. She's, a, she's, she's not only a villain. She's, she's sort of the heroine in her own story, as well as a villain in the family Chow's story. But I love that we underestimate her. And and I love that it, the reader feels implicated a little bit. I, I felt like, oh, why didn't I notice her, her more? You know, why didn't I think that she had the capacity to do this, to, the capacity to, capacity to lie and to pretend like she can't read? Um, and it's interesting because the system reflects this as well. The police don't, you know, they just hold up a sign. They're like, can you read this? She says, no, that's the easiest lie that you can say to someone, right? <laughs> There's no looking into her past. I don't feel like anyone is really interviewed, probably because nobody can speak Chinese. Unless you can't really like talk to her very well. Um, so she just kind of flies under the radar and the children don't know her. Nobody takes notice of her in this book. And that is kind of all of our faults. Totally. And when you think about it, it's, it's so impressive what she did that she was able to live and work in this place for 
what, a decade, more than that. And imagine overhearing all these conversations and having to keep your face blank or seeing signs and having to pretend you don't actually know, oh, they're pointing you this way. Things are labeled here and there. And you're totally right. She was, she wasn't considered at all. And I mean, I think from the start, they really didn't consider anyone. They just considered Dago as instantly guilty. Um, And I mean, the case was really in some ways stacked against him, you know, his radio broadcast and also... I really believed him. I thought, okay, I don't think he did it, but how did the dad end up in this freezer then? And and then in the end, when you know Ming is finding out, I really appreciated the kind of mirror she held up to Ming about himself, and and then Ming lets her go in his own way, and then James lets her go too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. Right. I still don't know what I think about that, about Same. the fact that James let him go or let her right. go. I, to me, I that felt a little bit more natural just in that I, I, I think of James as somebody who t- couldn't hurt a fly. And, and in, in the way that I think Dalgo can't ultimately kill his father, that inability to actually do the thing to harm someone is probably what James feels like times a million. Um, but Ming is interesting, right? Because Ming has had time to think about it. It's not this split, you know, second decision where he can call the police or not. He goes back there over and over again when he deep down knows. And that's interesting to me. And it is fitting with Ming as a character because he's really repressed. There's a lot of things that I feel like he doesn't acknowledge about himself. You're right. I hadn't thought about that. I had thought about how Ming really kind of shirked this responsibility and pushed it off on James. Um, Like, I'll just drop this bomb on James and let him think about it or decide what Mm -hmm, to do. mm -hmm. But you're right. He had so much more time. It's worse, way worse, Mm -hmm. that he didn't. To me, I feel like that was, yeah, Ming's is more a deliberate betrayal of Dago. And James is more, like you said, it's just this split moment of just kind of being stunned and like, what do I do here? And how do I, like you said, he can't hurt someone. And they both felt this moral obligation that, you know, it was, I think there was a great line about, uh, I forget if it was James or Ming seeing this, that as hard as it was to be Leo Chow's daughter or son, mm-hmm. it would mm-hmm, be so mm-hmm. much worse to be his yes. daughter. Oh, I love, I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, Ming he he sort of comes to the same conclusion that you came to, which is that this is all my fault and I'm the one that's actually guilty. And in his raving mad, like, you know, uh, entrance into the courtroom and, and confession and everyone's like, you didn't kill him, like you're crazy. Um, he, in a way, he's like, no, 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 you guys don't get it. I actually am the one who understood. I, and, and, and Olan says that too. She's like, you're the only one who could have figured it out. And it's interesting how closely she's been watching each of these three sons, right? She has so much to say about Ming. She does. And James, I guess. It seemed like Ming even more so. I don't know if she maybe felt more of a connection to him or just had more for him to reflect, like the way she, you know, said to him, you're a tourist. Um, Mm -hmm. You're not Chinese. I am. You are someone else. And I feel like that was really 
not how Ming sees himself. And they, the two sections of this book are part one is they see themselves and part two is the world sees them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I love those titles. And also I, I felt like the world was seeing them in the second half, but I feel like they were seeing themselves even more. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a great point. When, um, as, yeah, talking about this reflection Olam had on Ming, I know last time you had talked about this idea of authenticity and how it kept coming up. And I feel like it comes up most with Catherine's interest in Chinese culture. And there's this Mm -hmm. question that Ming, I think in particular, has of, you know, is her interest in Chinese culture, is it? an obsession? Is it a fetishization? Is it inauthentic because she is ethnically Chinese, but culturally was raised in this white American family? And then, you know, again, Ming thinks he's very authentically Chinese, but he has Olan point out to him, maybe you're really not. And it just, yeah, made me think about this question of how was each of these characters describing authentic? What would it mean to Olan, to Ming, to Catherine, to be authentically Chinese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I think that the way the book presents authenticity, it's, it's so relative, right? Because in the town of Haven, Wisconsin, um, the one Chinese restaurant, the Family Chow's restaurant, is the only piece of authenticity. It's It's the only part of the of the mainland that's made it over right and that is authenticity but of course to someone who's actually from the mainland it's it's not even close and so the people of course who who are chinese american they're they're not chinese enough to be considered authentic to her um but i feel like when we're talking about Catherine, i don't know that what she's and i, I think last episode last podcast episode, I, I called it the fetishization of um, authenticity because I don't think what she's after is actually authenticity. I think she's after belonging. I think that, you know, I imagine somebody who has a Chinese face, who's grown up in, you know, among all, all people who look different to her. Um, she's like that. I can't change that. That's one thing I can't change. And Catherine's such a driven, organized, dedicated person who is full of energy and full of this resolve to form her own identity. She's like, well, what can I do? I can learn the culture of the people who look like me. I can marry into that family and, um, and I can learn this. And so she does. And I think that, you know, by the end of the novel, it's actually that great moment in the courtroom where, um, she says something kind of embarrassing in court and, all of her community members are silent, even though there's laughter in, in the back of the room. Because, and that's when she knew that how much she was beloved by this community. And that really got to me because I think this entire book, we're, we're, we're seeing her as this person who's kind of unwanted. Like, why isn't she left yet? Why is she here? Why is she here? She, she isn't wanted by Dago, but she's wanted by everyone else. And I like my wish for her is that she really internalizes that and and. And James even says at the end that her her um, move toward standing up for Ming solidified her as a member of the family in that moment. And so it's a question. I don't know if she understands that she is a member of the family by the, by the end of the book. Um, 
And I think that she should be, whether or not Ming comes around and decides that he wants to pursue a relationship with her. I agree. I feel like she was completely a part of the community and the family. And I think I loved seeing all the ways that Alice's mother, Mary Waugh, how she, you know, brought her the gift at Christmas because mm-hmm. Winnie wasn't there to do so. And yeah, I feel like point. she was this really nice mother character to not just Catherine, but to to James and, and everyone else throughout the story. And it was interesting that this thought that, okay, she stood up for Ming, thereby betraying Dago, but that did solidify her place in the family. And, mm-hmm. e- you know, and she's even still visiting Dago at the end. And we know that caused a lot of drama. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I saw it as, I feel like by the end she had, I think, let go of her romantic attachment mm-hmm. To being with Dago, maybe because she felt accepted by the family finally, and so yeah. she no longer needed him to be the one to bring her in. That's a good point. Yeah, I hope that that's what happened there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I I also like this question of authenticity because um, I think you know, especially in publishing, we can get into this whole conversation of like, is this authentic? Is it not authentic? Is it written by a person whose own voice it is? Like, of course, that is like so, that is so important. But um, I wish we were as a nation of readers a little bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? I I wish we read a little bit more deeply. I wish we um, we're able to conceive of different nationalities in more nuanced ways. So it's not just about, are you ethnically this or that? Do you have the right to tell a story? But how do we know enough about, you know, these cultures to be able to spot it when things don't, you know, seem as authentic? Um, and I think we're not there yet. So I do think that it is important to highlight voices who are, you know, who have real skin in the game, like literal, literal skin in the game. I don't know if that's PC to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this book is clearly written by somebody who grew up Chinese in a really white town in Wisconsin, which I know Sam Chain did. So it was really interesting, I think, um, reading the, 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 not the transcript, the, um, the way that Lynn, who's a terrible journalist, by the way, Oh, yes. <laughs> the way that she experiences the just the the minor ways, which felt very loud to me as a Chinese American, um, that the that the that the the lawyer, the prosecution lawyer, um described, tried to paint the story of the Chows that fit into the American imagination. So I I I feel like we're still kind of in this space where we have this idea of what a Chinese story looks like and what a Chinese American story looks like. Um, one that is full of pain and one that is full of, you know, the, the model minority often or really strict parents. There's these like five to seven narratives that I feel like are really well understood. And so those are the ones that are pushed by media and pushed by publishing. But then once in a while, you get a gem of a book like uh, interior Chinatown that in a way boggles the mind. 
um, but forces you to look more closely at these at these characters and at these perspectives. And this one too, I think. Hello, everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. Well, yeah, okay. A lot of things you said there that I'm interested in. Um, you know, one, I think authenticity often is just described as this relative thing. Like you said, mm-hmm. it's just relative to whatever somebody knows. And I don't know, maybe that's part of why we have these really narrow, like you said, ideas of, oh, an authentic Chinese story falls into these categories when in fact, literally anything could happen to mm-hmm. a, a Chinese character and that would be authentic. You know, like mm-hmm. there's there shouldn't be those those limits on it. I'm curious, what is that book Chinatown about? Or what was what was it um, called? Uh, Interior Chinatown. Interior oh, it's Chinatown. Great. It's um it's by Charles Yu. It is about this guy who is his dream is to be like the main character in a TV show. He he's an actor, but he always ends up getting these background roles. And in getting these background roles, he explores what it means to be a Chinese man in America and the ways in which they are allowed to exist or not in the imagination of America. Um, it's very structurally complicated. It is, um, in a way, a kind of dense read. It's absolutely devastating. I think that it goes into the lives of people in Chinatown in a way that I haven't seen um, done quite so power- powerfully before. Uh, I, I highly, highly recommend it. It is one of my favorite books. Yeah, I want to look that up and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes too. Right. I know I, I learned about your book on a podcast, and so it's fun that we've already listed so many oh, book recommendations. Podcast? I forget who the interviewer was, what the podcast was, but it was an interview with Chloe Benjamin, and she mm. had shared, they asked, you know, what books are you looking forward to reading? And I remember she listed your book, and she listed Asia Gable's The Ensemble, which I also loved. Yes. It might have just been those two because I remember right away I went and got them. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. That was great. <laughs> okay, so James had this really great quote I thought to Dago at the very end of the book when they were talking about Brenda and how Dago actually was like, why doesn't she just leave me? I'm holding her back and why won't she just move on? And James mm-hmm. has this great kind of rhetorical question responsive, why don't any of us move on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely a question that stopped me in my tracks because I think I probably, you know, hold on to a lot of things. And it's got me mm-hmm. thinking, why don't any of us move on from experiences or people or stories or whatever it may be? And I'm curious if you, you know, if James asked you that question and you were going to try to give an answer, what you might talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think that these things that we can't move on from are 
really, really tied to our identity often, if they're important enough to us. So I also think that often when we've got our mindset in a certain way, so for Catherine, it would be like this, this, if I can make these things happen, this will make me worthy. This will save me. This will give me home and comfort. It's really hard to take that away because then how do you live, right? So it's not just letting go of something. It's restructuring your mindset and your world to allow for other things. And that's really scary. Um, So for me, often I have this, for example, I have this narrative that I'm not good at certain things. I'm not good at directions. I'm not good at math. (laughs) I'm not good at things that a lot of people directly in my life are amazing at. And I think that that is a form of self-protection because if I tell myself I'm not good at it, I don't have to try and fail at it. I can just tell myself I'm good at other things. So I feel that I cling to this idea that I'm not good at something. And then I think money, all the characters in this book have, you know, some kind of complicated relationship to money. I would argue that everyone in the world has a complicated relationship to money because money has so much to do with who you are. It has to do with your background. Um, I guess you could call it class if you wanted to. It has to do with um, what you are and are not able to do in life, power. Um, For many of these characters, it has to do with love. So money, the concept of it in your relationship to it is really hard to let go of as well. Mm -hmm. Because I see Brenda, you know, loving Leo despite everything that is you know the greatest surprise because I think that she has told herself what I need to be comfortable is to marry someone with a lot of money I you know we talked about complex characters I think Brenda is complex and also it was hard for me to or maybe polarizing characters it's hard for me to like Brenda because I do feel like she was kind of that was you know priority one was the money Um, Mm -hmm. but I love that idea of when things are tied to your identity, that's what makes them really hard to let go of. I think I think that's really true, and I hadn't thought about it that way. I had been thinking about how nothing is black and white, and so it'd be easy mm-hmm. enough to let, move on from something that was so clearly mm-hmm. only bad. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's yet a there's point. always something redeeming, like, you know, with Leo's character— Doggo could have potentially killed him because he had so much he hated. But in the end, it wasn't 100% hate. Otherwise, he would have done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that that is... And when we have hope in the mix, right? You just need a little bit of white to be like, no, but I can still do it. Or, you know, that thing is still possible. Um, mm-hmm. I'm proud of James, though, by the end. What he's... The realization that he's come to with with Alice and because I think that he is making progress and letting her go I felt like he was still really sad or maybe it was just because I was so sad for him <laughs> no I mean that's also true that's also true yeah and he hasn't 100% let go of the idea of them meeting again that's for sure I definitely felt a big heartbreak for him because for me I think I was probably feeling what he was feeling of this confusion on top of the sadness of us kind of like wait but why you know I think ultimately that she was like she didn't feel that he was the best match for her and I I can Mm -hmm. see that um and it seemed like she was kind of traumatized by the whole court you know the whole story uh the lawsuit and the the death and everything 
But I was I was left being very heartbroken for James. But I, I agree that we see him growing. We do see that. Yeah. There was a really interesting line that had said something like, uh, James, I forget who James was talking to, but he was thinking to himself, you know, they didn't know that I have this new ability to hear. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that line? I loved that part. Yes. Because I remember being like, wow, I hadn't thought about that being, you know, a growth point for him. Uh-huh. What yeah. did you think about this idea that he had a new ability to hear? Uh, I mean, that makes it, it made total sense. I, I had not either thought about that as as a point in, I would say, my life that I was like, oh, I'm suddenly hyper aware of sex. It wasn't like a, a certain moment, but I can see how it would have been for him. And I think that the moment is always interesting for me when children are observing their parents or adults as full human beings in a way that they were not able to before. I think that that is kind of marking entry into adulthood in a way. Totally. Okay, that's funny. I don't think I had thought about that it was like his ability to hear was like about picking up on like sexual cues and sexual context. Oh, really? (laughs) But I I, think you're totally right. That's what I was I think you are. That's funny. I'm like... I was like, is he understanding people's emotions? Like, what is he? But no, I think that was it. <laughs> I don't remember I, what character I was, he was the... talking about. If it was it, me and Catherine or, or, or if it was um, the other two that worked in the um, in the restaurant. Oh, here. I think I have it. Let's see. This is funny. I'm like, I'm the 12-year-old who's like, what? That? <laughs> I love that you also said last episode that you felt more that you were closest to James. Yes, and here I am <laughs> in James's <laughs> shoes. Um, okay, this is on page 168. James and Ming are talking, um, and James keeps saying, Ming, you look so tired. Are you okay? And Ming just is kind of pushing him off. And James says, it's the trial that's putting us all on edge. And Ming says, it's not the trial. The trial's a procedure, blah, blah, blah. He opens the door. Circles to the driver's door, still muttering. He doesn't know James is listening with his special Mm. new ability to hear. The villagers Uh are out, Ming is muttering, following the trail in the snow. And it kind of trails off from there. I feel Yeah, so... Go ahead. You go ahead. I would say, I I feel like this is... Yeah, it's. I feel like it's multifaceted. I do think he developed the ability to sense romantic interests between people i feel feel like he was able to see that between me and Catherine in a way he hadn't before he's able to see the way people treat him for example um even just sensing the way he was around alice after they weren't together and i think it's this other just ability to maybe pay more attention to the things that bother people or what's noticing what's going around him more and maybe like how like like the section title of the whole part two of the world sees them he's seeing that more yeah so two pages before that on 164 um so it says uh he meaning james is changing for example he knows from simply standing near them that the stale old sexual feelings between mr and mrs fan are enclosed within a kind of talcum powdered envelope of cordial respect on the other end of the spectrum, he's strongly aware that Sister Omi and another ov- novice 
are awash in a passionate magnetism of very recent sexual feelings. Where will his inheritance take him? So I guess he's saying that this ability, this attunement to sex coming from his father, maybe, it's like he would have adventure places. She said love would matter to him. He wonders, not for the first time since leaving college, what she meant by this. Mm-hmm. He's definitely haunted by that fortune. Yeah. I mean, I kind of am too, because I think it's the most interesting fortune in a way. And the one that we haven't seen played out exactly yet. Uh, Ming was told that he should stay or he should come back to um, the restaurant. And Dago was told he should stay away from the restaurant. And then James was more complicated. James was like, here's your entire life laid out before you. And it's going to be really tough for you. You're going to come into money. You're going to lose money. And I think the coming into money is going to have to do with the, the gold bars down in the basement. Right? Oh, that's right. I was trying to think about that. I was like, is Olan going to send him some money back or something? No, that's what it's mm-hmm. going to be. I think you're right. The gold bars so the in money the freezer. That Dago was like trying to give to Ming through the, through the veil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unclear if he was a ghost or imagination yes oh that was ming's um kind of like hallucination or right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah but i don't know there there could it could have been right it could have been more than that i feel like anything is possible <laughs> totally <laughs> here's no the, here's i agree the, the horror vanity coming out i like that i like that kind of stuff in a book where you're not sure which way the author means it, if they mean it right. literally or more metaphorically. Right, right, right. Well, I had two favorite passages I had wanted to share, but before that feels like kind of a, a wrapping up thing. Is there anything else that stood out to you about the second part of the book or now that we've read the whole thing together that you wanted to talk about? I know I'm going to, after we are done here, I'm going to be like, oh, what about that thing? But I think we did a good job of covering you know, the, the parts that were really resonant to me. I think that we, um, the, the parts that stood out to us were, a lot of them were the same. Mm-hmm. Yes, this was, I love getting to, to recap books together. <laughs> me too. So I had two favorite passages. Uh, the first one is, you can tell about my, my connection to James, about his, his heartbreak with Alice. Um, <laughs> and this is, I think in the last moment they actually spend together, they're lying in bed looking at each other. It's on page 276. In this instant, when James understands he may not see Alice much anymore, he doesn't know this is the moment when time will begin to circle backward. Even though he'll see her before she leaves for New York, Although he'll see her less and less frequently at the Christmas holidays, he'll never again see her head on the pillow next to his. He won't feel this way again, but will only return to it over and over in his memory. And each time he returns, the memory will change, will alter and degrade. Will she be looking into his eyes with the same intensity as now? Or will she not look at him in quite the same way? Will she gaze at him with gentleness and yet with a kind of coolness of distance? No, not even the memory will be the same. At some point, the hundredth repeat, the thousandth, thousandth repeat, the memory will be lost to time. James and Alice look into each other's eyes. Alice looks away and the moment is gone. It's Just so haunted sad. me. And it it's really so is sad. so true how memory is so much more fleeting than yes. I realize. And it's so sad after you lose one. I remember when I was younger, 
in my teens, I remembered everything that had ever happened to me. And now I can't remember really anything. <laughs> I've forgotten so much, you know, and it's, it's always sad to know what, what you, what you are losing. And, um, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but my partner has a terrible memory. So I'm often I'm like, remember that time you did this? And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I feel very alone. Like I'm alone in this memory. Yes, I, I feel the same way. I would probably say the same about, about my husband that generally I feel like my memory is, is stronger. And then the moments when it flips, I find very disorienting because I'm like, wait, same. I forgot like this whole trip we took or that mm -hmm. event we went to or this person we had dinner with. Because I think I, speaking of identity and letting go, you know, I identify as, oh, I'm someone who has a good memory. But in fact, mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> even if my memory is the best, it is like this, the bar is low. <laughs> uh, that's nice to be able to identify that way. I don't identify as someone who, who has a good memory. I just have a big, better memory than he does. <laughs> but, there, but, you know, the thing that I forget he won't remember, or sorry, he won't forget a lot of things that I've said. So he'd be like, you said this thing. I'm like, I didn't say that. He's like, yes, yes, you said that. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, what version of myself is like repeating the same jokes over and over again to people that I know, right? And, you know, what what have I, what incriminating thing have I said to him in, in the past year? I don't know. <laughs> that you don't know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I... To maybe told you in our first conversation that I'm working on writing and trying to write a novel. And I the idea came from, you know, oh, I'm going to write a kind of autofiction. It'll be fictional, but based on my life and relationships in college. And I was like, this is great. I'm just going to remember all of it and write it down. And like 10,000 words in, I'm like, well, that's all I remember. <laughs> Turns out you need a lot more to make a book. And so I'm like, well, this is the fiction part of the autofiction because there you go. There you I go. thought I was going to remember like a novel's length of information. <laughs> well, see, I think that that is actually the, I mean, it's a blessing in disguise because you're, what you make up is, is going, you have the seeds planted there, right? Of, of, you know, an impression of the, the people or the events, and then you get to make it better. You get to make it a better story because mm -hmm. sometimes I think that, um, too much, Oh, lived experience, if you're writing too directly from it, can limit you in a way because it, it, it um, what you find to be interesting is clouded with all these emotional ties and the reader doesn't come in with those ties, right? So without those specific elements there or without remembering everything, you can use fiction to then uh, bridge that gap to the reader um, and not become too... I guess, closely bound to it, or maybe that's just me, but that, that's, I, I found that to be true of me. Yeah, I can see that. I can already see, oh, I'm sure there are going to be parts of this story where I'm like, oh, but it happened this way and I'm going to be attached so I'm to it. Tell it exactly. yeah. But mm -hmm. that's not the most interesting storyline. And I imagine I'll have to, which will be good to think about, okay, or it's let's like, tell it not how so, it actually happened. It's like so amazing that this, this thing happened, but then like nobody believes it. We're like, oh, that's just that's just like your fiction writer yeah. thing. You're like, no, no, this actually happened. That was the real part. <laughs> I I do this really disconcerting thing where often if I've written about something, I can't remember if I have lived it or if I just wrote about it that way. I don't I don't know if you relate to this at all. I don't think I've written enough yet, but I could totally see how that would happen and how that would be very disorienting yeah I also I also do this thing where 
um, you know, when someone's telling you a story, uh, I don't know if this is true of you, but I imagine it in my head and I imagine myself in their shoes. So then often <laughs> when I try to recall this story, I'm like, I don't know if that happened to me or somebody else. And then that can really get you into trouble because right? then you're lying without knowing it or mm-hmm. you're telling somebody else's story. Right. Or when you kind of you don't have a memory of something, but your family has told you it so many times that you can almost yeah. act like you were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Memory is very fickle. <laughs> and, and super interesting unreliable. to read in fiction for that reason, right? Because the narrator is unreliable. Mm-hmm. Okay, my second favorite passage was almost at the very end of the book. The book was just a few pages from done, page 290. And let's see the context here. Um, James, oh, James... Alice and her mom, and is mostly talking with her mom, and Alice is kind of avoiding him. James says, I'll see you tonight at the party. Alice nods. James stares at his sneakers. After the verdict, Alice said it made sense for them not to be alone together for a while. Of course, they'll always be friends, but why bring back old feelings? James wonders now. Have the, feeling Al- have the feelings Alice once felt for him vanished in the same way so much of Dago's anger and hatred for Leo Chow have gone? After emotions are felt, expressed, where do they go? Is there a place where spent passion collects? Surely it can't simply vaporize, disappear like smoke. There must be a secret hiding place for every old love affair, a locked room. I love that. And it really, you know, speaking of the mystical, what's what's real, what's a metaphor, where does, where do all our emotions go? You know, where do all these experiences stories where does that love go i think it goes into art i think that's that's where it goes you know and and i think i can think of specific short stories i've written that were about specific relationships and i read them again i'm like that's where it went but how do you feel i love that answer i i don't know i think i was gonna think about does it go into nature? But I don't really know how it would present itself. Uh, just thinking about things floating around in the world. And, uh, you know, does it go into another life? Does it come out through another experience? It's, I feel like I, this is a time where I wish I had more of a, I don't know if spiritual is the word, or like mystical mind to think about where do these things go? Because it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I, believe in that possibility and also mm-hmm. am not able to see all the possibilities because I am more of a literal thinker. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that it goes into art because I think you're you're totally right that for, you know, for anyone who knows how to express themselves or chooses to express themselves through art, that's that's where that goes. Yeah. Um I think in terms of the specifics of something that has happened to you for sure. But I like what you're saying, too, about maybe it just goes into the atmosphere and and the passions that we feel are cyclical and they come back to us in a different form. The love that you feel when you're 14 is not going to be the love that you feel when you're 34. But that 34-year-old love has has a different flavor Mm -hmm. um, and is not the same kind of passion, but... Yeah, maybe it's it's still it's still there, just in a different form. I think so. 
Well, I think I think that's probably everything on the family chow. I am I'm going to play at the end of the episode a song that I think is uh, kind of representative of Leo Chow. I don't know if you know the artist Kishibashi. No. He's one of my favorites. Highly recommend him. We actually, I did a whole episode with some other fans of his music about what we love about his songs. And he has this song called Mr. Steak that is a, it's a very funny song. It's like basically a song about, you know, a man having a great steak dinner and like being in love and basically being in love with his steak. And (laughs) it's this just, it's just this funny song. And I thought about it with Leo's you know, obsession with his meat freezer and the way he brings <laughs> the meat to the dogs at the spiritual house and how I, when I thought about this song in relation to Leo, it made me, because generally I kind of hated Leo, but I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of funny. Like, Leo is Mr. Steak and I want to play that song as the outro to this episode. <laughs> so Perfect, I can't I wait will, to hear it. I will send it to you and yes, and everyone listening will hear it. Well, thank you so much, Lucy. This has been so fun. It has been so much fun. I'm so glad we did this. podcast but it's also like more than a podcast don't talk to me unless it's about this is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books music comedy and other forms of story and to fuel our own creativity so we have a patreon community that you can try out for free 
It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show, join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon, or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, so please tell us by leaving a review, emailing us, or sending a message on Instagram. 